Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Now, to see what the church is, we're going to look at the earliest known account of a gathering of the church. In part two of Luke's writing, what we call the Acts of the Apostles. So to set the scene for us, it's five to six weeks, roughly, from when Jesus is resurrected and ascended. And we're roughly five weeks out from them. It's now primarily, well, we'll get to that in a sec, sorry. Uh, he's been with his group of followers. He's been eating and drinking with them. He's somehow, even though resurrected, still enjoying time with them in that manner. And he's teaching them throughout the Old Testament scriptures. For them, that's the Bible, because they don't have the New Testament. And he's helping them understand God's plan of salvation with Jesus in mind, looking back through the lens of Jesus, through, it, through the lens of the resurrection on the Old Testament writings, and seeing how all along the scriptures were pointing towards the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and now entering into what's called the age of the Spirit. Now, when I was previously with you guys four weeks ago, in Article 8, we discussed salvation. We said that God had given us a new place before Him. He made us into a new person. He gave us a new people to be a part of, together with a new purpose to live life together. Because of what God had done, and accomplished through Jesus, they had been given a new identity, just as we too now are who are in Christ. No longer were these people strangers or enemies. No, they were family. No longer were they self-centered. No, they were servants. They were servants of one another. And no longer were they living lives lacking of any purpose. No, they were missionaries on mission for God's kingdom. Now, does this mean, I think sometimes we look back on the book of Acts and we're like, oh, it sounds all perfect and polished. Yeah, because it's a lot of summary bites. It's not like there's there's a few day-to-day things happening, but a lot of it can just be like, this happened, and in general, this happened, in general, this happened. There are some incidents, but overall, does this mean that there was no tension or relational strife? Uh, No. If you recall my first sermon I ever gave you guys, when I came to Candidate, was about a really big, tense moment going on in the early church where um, a couple people died later on in the book of Acts because they were deceiving not only the people of God, but the Spirit. The Gospel made these people family. It wasn't perfect. They were family already, but they were still becoming who they were as family. Does this mean that everyone was selfless 100% of the time? No way. Not at all. The gospel made them servants, and yet they were still becoming who they were as servants. And does this mean that everyone felt good about what their life purpose was, what they were doing in their vocation, how that looked for them to follow Jesus in their career and relationships in that time? No. The gospel made them missionaries with a new purpose, but they were still figuring out what that looks like to be a Jesus follower as a person who worked in the marketplace a mother, a father, a grandparent, a child, and so forth. And this is what we've referred to as what's called the already not yet. That we are already family, but we're not yet totally gelling as family, right? Some of us who have been in a relationship longer, yeah, we feel more at home, right? But we know right away God has made us family when we are in Christ. He's made us servants. He's made us missionaries. But we're still being made into family, servants and missionaries. Similarly, like when my wife and I got married, right? I was her husband. She was my spouse. Right at I do, right? We signed the paper. I think that's probably the time when it became a fish. Um, But were we like perfectly one already? No. If anything, people who have been married a while might realize that no, over time you kind of go in and out of sync. Sometimes you're working and gelling really well, and sometimes no. But so we are married, we are one, but we are becoming one still. It is this lifelong process. And that marriage is this this shadow, this illustration for us, this temporary illustration for us of the eternal reality of the way we relate to God, right? 
That God has made us His people, but He's still making us into His people. We are saved, but we are still being saved. One of my favorite artists, uh, King's Kaleidoscope, entitled their first album, Becoming Who We Are, alluding to this reality of the Jesus follower. Becoming who we are. And then two records later, that for the, the writer, the, the lead singer, Chad Gardner, they represent many seasons and years of life in Jesus, ups and downs, and so forth. Chad reflected both on the uncertainties of life as well as his sometimes failing, flailing faith in his song, Safe Retreat. He writes on the bridge, none of this is wasted. Still becoming who we are. Ordinary people, extraordinary scars. Now this is the life of a Jesus follower. This is the life of a Christian. A journey, not simply a destination. Sometimes we get off at the wrong exit, right? If you're like me, uh, one time I took a road trip um, and I was supposed to go from Southern California and I was supposed to go, um, we went to summer camp in high school and I was a leader and it was about an hour and a half away from home. Well, my buddy and I, um, we got on the freeway to leave camp and head back home. We were supposed to get on the 8 West, um, and I didn't realize I got on the 8 East. And a couple hours later, in an, almost an empty tank, we're almost in Arizona. Um, and it's like 120 degrees in the desert, and my old 92 pickup is just done, and I call my youth pastor, and I'm like, Steve, and I have all the luggage, all the kids' luggage in the back of my truck. And, um, and I'm like, Steve... I'm really frustrated, man. We, we went the wrong way. He's like, what do you mean you went the wrong way? And I'm like, we literally got on the wrong, like, we're supposed to go west. He's like, which way did you go? East. It's like, and he, uh, he's this blonde surfer dude. All I hear is this, this two-second pause, and then he's just like, ah, you dummies. <laughs> and he's just cracking up. He's like, brah. He's a surfer dude. It's so funny. He's, He's like Yoda, but in his 50s, but he's still like this young guy at heart. And he's just like, you're like dumb and dumber. You drove halfway across the country in the wrong direction. If you've ever seen that movie um, where Jim Carrey drives the wrong way halfway across the country. Anyways, yeah, that happened. It took a long time to get out. We didn't get home for like almost another day. It was awful. Whole other story. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we went the totally wrong way with Jesus. And sometimes we need help. I literally had to get our truck pulled out by a tow truck because I, I tried. <laughs> Here's the other thing. Not only did I do that, I tried to turn back in the wrong way. I tried to turn around in the sand dune because there was no exit. For, it was one of those signs of like, hey, no civilization for an hour and a half. One of those things. And my gas was on E. And I'm like, Sam, my buddy Sam King, we were we were probably going to die. So I'm like, we were down to like half a water bottle and I'm like, dude, our best shot is just to turn around, right? Like just, and see how far the truck can go. And then we got to, we got to make a way to, back to the last exit, which was like 20 miles. And so even then I, I made another mistake. I tried to turn around in the wrong way and I got stuck in the sand dune. And, so, and then I tried to rev it and literally it's just like, no joke, my bumper was in the sand. Um, don't ask me for car help. Don't ever ask me for things like that. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we just got off at the wrong exit and we just need to go back one. But sometimes, like me, I do things like that and it's awful. But so is the life for a Jesus follower, right? Sometimes our phone dies or we're out of reception. We're unsure if we're going the correct way. Sometimes we need to pull over, look at a map, stop for directions, call a friend, and yeah, turn around. The road trip of life for the Jesus follower was never meant to be a solo trip. We get to our destination together. We're meant to become who we are, who God has told us we are, and who the Spirit is making us into together. So salvation is not simply about me and God, but about us and God, right? Unfortunately, in the West and, and a lot of even North American culture, we, we've minimized, or we've been given a minimized gospel message, right? Revivals and crusades have done wonderful things for the sake of individual salvation, but sometimes even evangelism pitches can be this individual take. It's emphasized the opportunity to make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior and to have a personal relationship with God. But they've often come while neglecting to communicate that our faith is just that. Our faith. Not my faith. It's both. But the writers of the New Testament predominantly speak of 
the faith as our faith, a plural possessive thing. In the New Testament, for example, Savior is only referenced to as my Savior once. Well, at least 20 times it's phrased along the lines of our Savior. Similarly, Lord is used at least 50 times with a plural possessive pronoun. And yet, again, only once as my Lord. No, he's our Lord. He's our Lord and Savior. And that's something we've neglected. We've said, you know, salvation restores us to God, but the reality is salvation also restores us to each other and to all of creation. It's restored us to our right place in the kingdom, in God's realm. Salvation doesn't simply restore us to flourishing relationships with God, but flourishing relationships with each other and all of creation for the sake of God, for the sake of His glory. And so that's why for us, for a Christian, we cannot follow Jesus without being committed to a local church. It just doesn't work. The New Testament knows of no Jesus followers who are not deeply committed to a local church, to a local body of believers, and in submission to a local eldership. It's just not in the New Testament. While salvation does sometimes come to individuals at one time, God's gospel is primarily collectively oriented in the writings of the New Testament. For example, Stanley Grenz writes, according to the Bible, God's ultimate desire is to create from all nations a reconciled people living within a renewed creation, enjoying the presence of the triune God. This biblical vision of community is the goal of history. Uh, more of why local church commitment is necessary in a moment. But so we get now up to Luke 24, beginning of Acts 1. They kind of overlap. Before he departed, Jesus wanted his early Jesus followers to, to understand the fullness of what God had been doing. And so in Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, right before he's departing from them. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, this is a plural you, just so you know. Our English doesn't translate that well for us. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And these words are what have come to be known as the Great Commission. This, this is a similar summary to what Matthew 28 is. The go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, those are the same moment. They've just recorded them a little differently for uh, creative purposes. But those are the same instances being recorded. But Jesus tells them their task. That as Jesus follows, they are now family to one another, servants of one another, and missionaries alongside one another, tasked with declaring the good news to all of creation that Jesus is king, that his kingdom is at hand, and to make more followers of Jesus. And so what do they do? Well, they listen to Jesus. They wait. They continue to gather and wait for the Spirit to come. And then on what now we call Pentecost Sunday, a big thing happens. Luke records at the, uh, I think it's the beginning of chapter 2, that what happens, the Spirit descends, it fills the Jesus followers when they're gathering, and Luke says they began speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, with many devout Jesus, uh, Jewish people in that uh, city at that time, from numerous nations of many different languages at that time, because of what had happened in the last couple centuries for, for the Jewish community, they've kind of much spread out. It's what's called diaspora Judaism. They're, they're kind of, they've been exiled, and so they've kind of found a place in pockets of all over the Middle East. And because of that, they've learned different languages, and some of them, they don't speak a lot of the same language. And what happens, all of a sudden, all these Jesus followers are starting to speak every language that these people speak. And, they're, and, and for them, they're like, what's going on? How is this even possible? They must be super drunk. I don't know about you, but I've, I've, well, I've never actually been drunk. But I don't suspect I'd all of a sudden be able to start speaking French well. Um, it's just not a thing. Um, usually, we lose a lot of our mental capabilities in that, uh, in that state, from my understanding again. Not personal experience. Um, but anyways, for them, 
they're, they're blown away. What is happening? And so all these people are like, how could this group, this small group of Jewish people from this little community be so fluent in so many different languages? But filled with the Spirit, the Apostle Peter preaches what's called the first gospel message on this side of the resurrection. And Luke records in, in chapter 2, verse 37 of Acts, that when they heard the gospel, the audience was, quote, cut to the heart. They were pierced and moved to them. And they asked, how should we respond? Peter responds, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Luke records that 3,000 persons were baptized that day. Now this is likely a rough estimate. Um, it, it could be exactly 3,000, but it's, likely, uh, it's unlikely. It's more likely a lot more in particular because we don't record uh, women and children in this time. It's just not something we did. It's more likely, if you consider it, more around eight to 12,000. That's a lot of people to just all of a sudden come to faith in one day. That would be intense. It would be a miracle. It would be, what a witness to the glory of God. And this is the scene for this morning's one verse that we're looking at. Read with me, Acts 2.42. How they respond. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Luke does this, this section 42 to 47. At the end of every couple chapters, he kind of summarizes it's a transitional paragraph, essentially, where he's transitioning from one long scene that took up 40 to 50 verses, and then he summarizes what happened, this is what it looked like, on to the next thing. That's what Luke did. And that's what this section is. And he's basically telling us, this is what it looked like for the coming weeks, months, before they get spread out later on, I believe, in Acts 7. So from this passage, we see four components or elements that make the early church. We see a learning community, a fellowshipping community, a feasting community, and a praying community. Let's briefly consider what each of those mean for us today. So the first one, a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So disciples or followers of Jesus, another term for this is an apprentice. Some of us may have learned a trade, a trade growing up. We may have apprenticed under someone. Um, or perhaps the vocation you're in required you to go to school a lot longer. Even still, uh, we likely receive some sort of job training. Not a lot of us graduate, and then on the next day we start in the job without some sort of training for a couple weeks even, but still something. If you didn't receive that, um, well, that, that, that might have been a struggle, right? But no, most vocations give you the opportunity to train, to apprentice under someone. This is what the scriptures mean when they refer to Christians or followers of Jesus as disciples. We are to apprentice under our rabbi, under our teacher, our Lord. Now, Judaism at this time would be referred to as sectarian Judaism, meaning we, we might, for lack of better, we might see this more as denominations. So similar to Mennonites, Reformed, Pentecostal, things, things of that sort, Baptists, they had different sects. S-E-C-T-S. -E I want to make sure I'm clear on what that is. Um, we know of a few in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? There's also the Essenes and the Zealots. Those are the four main uh, um, Jewish groups of sectarian Judaism in that time. Now, because there was such a diversity of thought, young students, they would apprentice under their rabbi, in particular if they were going to uh, aspire to become a rabbi someday or someone involved in the local temple and they would apprentice under them. That's why, you know, the story where the gal is sitting at the feet of Jesus when Jesus is teaching was such a radical story because essentially Jesus was saying, hey, this female is aspiring to be a rabbi, aspiring to be one of my teachers. That was a big deal in that day to have someone sit at your feet in that way. That was the, the next up and coming. That was my main apprentice. That was, that's the cultural setting for us. This is why we use words and phrases such as Jesus follower, apprentice, and disciple as synonymous with the word Christian. We're learning a new trade. We're learning a new way of life, a new way to be human under our rabbi, our teacher Jesus. 
Now in job training, and even later on in life, right, when we get into our job, how many of us didn't mess up when we trained? Not very many of us. I remember when I got my first job at Starbucks, I definitely messed up a lot at age 16. I didn't like coffee, didn't know what it was, didn't even know that there was different milks because we didn't drink milk in our home. So I didn't understand the difference between 2% and whole, and, and what is 1%. We didn't have, yeah, all these different things, brevet and half and half are the same. There's just a lot of things. It's a lot of things. And so I messed up. I definitely gave out some bad drinks, definitely gave out decaf to regular people and regular to decaf. Hopefully not too many people had heart attacks, but it happens. Um, it is a scary thing to trust your life to someone preparing your coffee sometimes. Um, anyways, we've messed up, but odds are in your practice, in your apprenticeship at some point, you probably didn't do everything perfectly, right? In whatever field you were preparing for. We made mistakes. Do we hopefully learn new and better ways to do our trade? when new methods and research develop? Yes. I don't think any of our vocations have stayed, maintained using the same tools, right? The same uh, items. No, everything has improved. Even just walking through the hospital a few weeks ago at Dover, seeing the timeline of just Union Hospital, you kind of see some of the old medical equipment in the, in the uh, pictures. Right away as a horror movie fan, I'm like, this is creepy, that old hospital just no, 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 run. Um, it just looks so scary. No offense, guys. Um, but I think you guys look more welcoming now. Um, but no, the equipment has improved over time, right? Our coffee machines have improved. The way we've made burgers, the way we've built houses, it's different. We've improved. We've developed. We learn ongoing together as a community in our trade. Similarly, that is the way for us as Christians. That's why this is an ongoing process for the life of a Christian. That's why we refer to following Jesus as practicing the way. It's a practice. It is something we are aspiring to. Think of an athlete where we are continuing to improve our skill. We are continuing to improve our faith in and followership of Jesus. Are we doing it to earn our place? No, our place has been earned. We are already in Christ, but we are remaining in Christ. We are becoming like Christ. We are already saved, and yet we are being saved. We are being transformed. Now, for years, the first followers of Jesus were not thought of as Christians. That's actually why that term actually was somewhat more of a derogatory term. No, they were, they were more referred to as followers of the way. They were simply thought of as another Jewish people until the Gentiles start coming in and then we start expanding and figuring out, okay, how does this all work? But for them, it was a practice. It was a followership. It was something we worked at and that we learned together in community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Next one. Well, actually, briefly, that is partly what this is, but that is not what this is not what the only component. A lot of that for us, we're trying to incorporate into things like groups, or if you're involved in a Bible study or something like that, it also involves just personal or in-house reading of your scriptures or other faith-oriented books, things that challenge your faith, your thinking, they sharpen you, and so forth. We are to people, to be people, who are learning more about the way of Jesus and about Jesus. I mean, if I never, if I married my wife and never showed any interest in her, you might question my devotion, right? Man, if we became a follower of Jesus but never showed any interest in him, or getting to know him more or, or, or serve him better, you might question whether or not I'm devoted, right? So, so it is for us, right? In Christ. And we see that as an example. These people... They saw who Jesus was, they saw their place in him, and they devoted themselves to apprenticing under him. Next one, a fellowshipping community. They devoted themselves to fellowship. What is fellowship? Uh, fellowship, in my uh, upbringing and what I was familiar with, I just kind of always thought it was Christians hanging out, Christians having fun. As long as there's a couple Christians in the room, hey, brother, let's fellowship. Um, that's not what fellowship is. It, it's more than that. It, those can be a part of it. But if, we, if our conversation and life together look no different than non-Christians, is that fellowship? 
No, it's different. It's something different. It's not just eating food and playing ultimate frisbee together. When we look at the scriptures, fellowship is much more than small talk between two Christians. In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright summarizes fellowship as such. He says, the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two. To encourage one another, to build one another up in faith, to pray with and for one another, to learn from one another, and to teach one another, and to set one another examples to follow, challenges to take up, and urgent tasks to perform. This is all part of what is known loosely as fellowship. It's life together. It's committing to one another. It's seeing my role as helping one another follow and have faith in Jesus more in our lives. And when we fall short, we graciously come alongside each other, right? When we're struggling, we go and support one another. Man, when we're doing well, when, when we're super encouraged by someone, we say, man, you are encouraging me towards Jesus. When I see what you're doing, makes me want to follow Jesus more. It makes me see the reality of the gospel more. Now, Wright essentially summarized the mission of the church. That's going to come more next week. But then he essentially describes the process of how we execute that mission, how we train and prepare for our calling, spiritual formation, which he argues comes largely through the fellowship of the local church. Now, there's this wonderful little book called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph H. Hellerman. He's a prof at uh, Talbot or Biola in Southern California. He writes, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who do not grow, we all know, uh, uh, sorry, people who do not grow. Oh, I mistyped that. I'm sorry. There's a typo there. Anyways, next sentence. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in the Christian lives. Then there are those who leave to avoid working, through uncomfortable or painful relations with others in the church family. Running away does provide immediate relief from the awkwardness of a hurtful relationship. It is the easy way out in the short term, right? And there are legitimate reasons sometimes to even leave a local church. But people who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. We've all probably been in a community where we have those people. I think every town has their Christians that every few months are at a different church. And they make their way back to your church. And they have a hard time staying because it's a hard time committing. To be known and to let people know you and to know others. To grow together. But that is exactly what church is. It involves that discomfort. Say, for example, if you will, that um, someone, a pastor goes away for a couple weeks and comes back with really poor facial hair, and none of you guys said anything. Um, And you guys all just let it go, and we're like, I'm not going to tell them that that's awful. (laughs) Thank you, Beth, for saying, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. But... If I did that, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Why wouldn't you say something? You should have my back. Uh, <laughs> one illustration I heard growing up, and this happened before, I don't know if you've had this before, where you get something in your teeth during a meal with someone, and then you finally get home hours later, and you're like, dude, it's been right there down Main Street, this whole thing. And I've been with that person. Like, we definitely, they've seen it. They've seen it. At least 50 times they've seen it. They didn't say anything. No, we don't, no, say something. The loving thing to do is say like, hey man, in love, you've got something right here, right? Because if not, I mean, I don't know who that person's going to go see out in the world. And I mean, 
what if they're single and they're going to go meet potentially the girl they're supposed to marry or something? It's like, no, bro, I want you to look good. Or bro, you need some more deodorant. Like something like that. You might, like, in love, help you. But same thing, even more so, faith-wise. We are to spur one another on, right? That is in love. That is part of what fellowship is. That sometimes we are messed up people. Perhaps your trepidation or reason for not committing to a local church is more due to the church to who the church allows or welcomes into their community. You see them as sinners or messed up or the term often thrown out is hypocrites, right? The church is hypocrites. But that's literally what the church is for. That's why Jesus came and to seek the save and the, the lost, right? Not the found. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their need for God. For theirs is the kingdom. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. Yes, I get the problem that, oh, that church doesn't realize they're sick. They're, they're pretending that they're well. Got that. I'm talking more in regards to, hey, they have people in their, house, in their church family that don't have it all together yet. Those people are welcome here. Flannery O'Connor summarizes it this way. The operation of the church is entirely set up for the sinner which creates much misunderstanding among the smug. It's when the church fails to be a safe haven, a hospital, a recovery center, an open door, that's when the church arguably no longer is the church, right? Brennan Manning, if you've ever read this book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, um, it's a helpful book. It's It's a really timely book often. He summarized it this way. He said, The story goes that a public sinner was excommunicated excommunicated and forbidden entry into the church. He took his woes to God. He said, They won't let me in, Lord, because I'm a sinner. And he asked, What are you complaining about? They won't let me in either. That story in Revelation where you know, Jesus is knocking on the church, uh, on the door, it's often used in evangelism messages as Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. That's not what the passage is at all. The passage is literally about the seven churches who have walked away from faith, or some of which have walked away from their first love, and Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. They literally won't let them into their people. They've excommunicated Jesus from their presence. It's not this evangelistic, let Jesus into the door of your heart. That's not what that is. It's literally the church has forsaken their first love. No, this place is to be a community of people who don't have it all together, where we own that we don't have it all together, but we're committed to helping people redirect their lives, find their new life, their new place in Jesus. That's why, like uh, the common English translation, the common English Bible, said they devoted their devotion as to the community, not just to fellowship, or to a communal form of life. This describes a close association or a partnership together for a greater cause. If you recall, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, or I'm not just quoting this because Rings of Power just came out. I haven't watched it yet. Don't tell me anything. Um, But if you recall, the group tasked with taking the ring back to Mordor, what are they referred to as? A fellowship, right? It's a small group of people, but they are called the Fellowship of the Ring. Are they all the same? No. They are from vastly different places all over Middle Earth, all over their world. They're different shapes and sizes and have different skills. Some of them even hate each other. They almost exchange blows, right? If you've ever seen the movie, there's definitely quite a few times where Gimli gets into fights with just about anyone. It's pretty comical, but it's definitely a representation of Jesus' original disciples. That even amongst the twelve that Jesus called, there were literally political and social enemies if their allegiance was still to primarily those political and social, cultural allegiances. But now Jesus recalibrating, saying, no, your allegiance now is to me and my kingdom. Those things shouldn't separate us anymore. Your zealot or Essene, your Sadducee, your Pharisee, your Republican, your Democrat, your Trump or Biden, whatever, 
it shouldn't separate you anymore. You got to figure this out. I've made you family. You cannot leave this table. Parents, if you've ever had kids or man when you were younger and you got into a big fight with your siblings, like my parents would stick my sister and I in a room and we couldn't leave until we got it, got along, right? And it was like, no, you're going to figure this out because you're brother and sister. Man, that's the same kind of thing. No, you're in this together. I have made you family. There is no reason for you to separate. You, you stick together. You are family and you are becoming family. You are my follower and you are learning how to follow me better together. And, and maybe by sticking you with someone who totally rubs you the wrong way, you are learning how to love that person the way I had to figure out how to love you. That's a tough one. That's a tough one to swallow for us. In a lot of ways, these people in the fellowship and, and these people in our room, right? We don't belong in the same room. In what other place would we all be associated together? Not all of us are OSU fans. Not all of us are the same political party. Not all of us like the same type of community. We all live in different areas. Not all of us shop at the same grocery center or grocery store or anything like that. No, we all have different preferences. But somehow we're together. If we're honest, apart from Jesus, we don't belong together. And yet God has brought us together. God's made us family and he's making us family. And that's supposed to be this unique beauty and witness of the local church that when people come together, when they come into our gatherings, when they walk in and they see, hey, it doesn't make sense that all these people are in the same place. And yet they are and they're talking and they're dialoguing and they're serving one another and they're giving their lives and time and attention to each other. This makes no sense. There must be something bigger going on here. More on that next week. More on that next week. Next one, feasting community. Two more, feasting community. These are a little quicker. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What comes to mind when you hear the word feast? Um, perhaps for you it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. Yeah, you're like, yeah, Christmas dinner, right? Uh, yeah, for me, comes to mind, big Mexican feast. Uh, Christmas was always tamales, rice, beans, fresh chips, guac, salsa, um, there might even be fresh tortillas, some carne asada, uh, Mexican turkey. Like, it's way too much food. Way too much food. Whatever meal comes to mind for you as a feast, though, what words, what pictures come to mind for you? For me, after the stress of preparing the food, right, there's delight. There's being filled. There's stuffed. There's nourishment. There's joy. There's satisfaction. By the breaking of bread, Luke is likely referring to the early church obeying Jesus' command that he gave at the end of uh, his gospel, where Jesus broke the bread on the night he was betrayed and said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, what is this? He's referring to the Lord's meal, communion, the Lord's supper, the Eucharist, whatever you may refer to it as. And we're going to discuss communion in a few weeks. That comes up later on in an article. But for the sake of brevity here, Communion was never meant to just simply be a little cup of juice and a little cracker. Um, it was much more. It was the commencement of a big meal. So what we do every Sunday afternoon after church, essentially, we ought to break some loaves of bread and pass the juice, or well, for them it was wine, um, and we, we could do that too. But, um, um, but yes, they would commence the meal that way. It was the opening. It was almost the appetizer, but saying dinner is served. But what was that doing? It sought to recognize and see the abnormal within the normal. To bring celebration amidst the mundane meal, to see the physical nourishment as the representation of all of life nourishment that we have in light of Jesus. So it's helpful for us to, helpful for us to see that even now, the Lord's meal was not limited to a seasonal communion service at our church, but no, it was a regular part of their gathering. It was something that they would do every time they gathered together for meals. It was something, pray in a manner, thanking God for His nourishment. It gave them, the meal gave them nourishment, delight, and joy. But as the meal filled them as a temporary source of life and nourishment, so it pointed to Jesus 
as their eternal source of life and nourishment. So just like Sunday, often I'm telling you things that you've probably heard, why sometimes we fall asleep a little, aside from my boring monotone voice, but you're like, dude, I've heard this a thousand times. Sure, we still need to be reminded of it. What difference it makes, right, for a young child who grows up in a household who was told I love you nearly every day or throughout the day by their kid versus I was told I love you on my birthday or something like that, right? What difference that does to someone? No, the reminder. When I tell Rowan I love her, she knows. But man, I think it does something to tell her all the time, right? When I tell my wife that, when I tell my kids that, it does something. When you are reminded in this weekly gathering here, and when we remind ourselves before meals, that prayer before meal ought to be a thanks of God as we eat this meal, remind us that as this fills us for these next few hours, man, remind us that you fill us, Holy Spirit, that your grace has nourished us. That is what it's doing. That is what Jesus was pointing to. So every time they gathered in their meals, they are reminding themselves of this. If you would like, there's a great little book. It's like 40 pages called Going to Church in the First Century. It's a, it's a historical fiction, but it's a cool little telling of a church gathering that was essentially a meal and a teaching, and it kind of illustrates what it potentially looked like. Anyways, the last one. We are a praying community. A church is a praying community. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Some of your translations, NIV and NLT in particular, say they devoted themselves to prayer. Um, but I think it's important to add the the. Most of your translations probably say the prayers. Or um, like in the NKJV or the KJV, they refer to in prayers, which I think is closer to. Essentially, they devoted themselves to the regular fixed hours of prayers. They didn't, like, once they became, started following Jesus, they didn't stop being Jewish and doing their regular times of prayers throughout the day, their morning, their midday, their evening, their nighttime prayers. No, they were still going to the temples. They were still viewed as Jewish people. They were still participating in regular prayer throughout the day. And the reason why, it wasn't like, again, it wasn't to make their place before God, but it is an orienting of your day. So think about it. When you wake up in the morning, I don't know about you, I'm not a morning person. I learned this probably second day of marriage where uh, Aaron is, I thought the first day it was like, okay, it's the first morning. You know, good morning. Okay, yeah, sure. That's nice. Second day is like, good morning. Like, oh no, this this is becoming a a habit. Um, Let's not make this a way of life. I don't want to be called, said good morning right away Um, because it's not a good morning for me. I'm waking up. And it's like, no, I need coffee, I need some silence, I need to read a little, I need some space. Let me just be a little. And so we've kind of worked that out, right? But so in the morning, why is there a morning prayer historically in the church? Well, we've set it as a way to orient our day. To put the correct lens as we get ready for our day. Literally, even before looking in a mirror, people who might have body issues or something like that, right? It's before I even see the mirror and see and doubt my self-worth based on my physical appearance because that's what the gospel of the culture is. No, I'm, before I even look in the mirror, I am looking into the mirror of scriptures and seeing who I am in Jesus, reminded of my beauty, my goodness, my renewal in Jesus. And then I go to the mirror, right? And then I see my weird mustache, and I'm like, it's okay, that doesn't define me. Um, But yeah, so even that, that's what the morning prayer was for. And then midday, they would take midday prayer, right? Midday, usually, you know, halfway through the workday, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like, we kind of turn to the afternoon coffee, right? We kind of get the midday coffee to get us through. What if there was a little bit more midday prayer to get us through, to reorient our, okay, the morning's gone rough, but the rest of work, here we go. There's a few more hours. Oh no, then I got to go home and there's all this going on. Oh shoot. Okay, that's where evening prayer came in. There's an evening prayer. And they would take a few minutes and do an evening prayer. And it would literally be right before meal too. And then there was a nighttime prayer. As you rest, we have this, um, there's a book by Tish Harris Warren or Warren Harris. She has a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, but she's got a cool little prayer book for kids. And we read it with Rowan on different things, but there's like a little prayer for going to bed, right? And as I rest in this evening, may I be reminded of the eternal rest 
I have in God. It's just little prayers, but they reorient, they fix our focus as to what this part of the day is. There are little things. They don't change who we are before Jesus. They don't save us, but they do sustain us. They do nourish us. They would do these regularly, and that was culturally uh, appropriate, you know, in the Middle East. And we see this even, you know, some cultures in the Middle East still have hours of prayer, right? In particular, Islamic uh, cultures where literally places of business, right? They, they pause for a little bit. Uh, I think down in Mexico where, like, the afternoon, there's a certain point where things close because the culture is you go home and take a nap. You take a siesta. That'd be cool. Um, but that's their cultural value. We don't really have that here. If anything, we're kind of like, no, let's keep going. You've got a free evening? Fill it. Um, don't fill it with prayer. Fill it. Find something else to do. No. That's, that's kind of the drowning out of our life, right? No, if anything, we make these little pockets of space throughout the day, even just a couple minutes, even 30 seconds, just a prayer to reorient your time in that portion of the day. And what, the beautiful thing about this, I find too, is that if I did the morning prayer and by lunchtime my day is awful, what's cool is it's like, hey, let's close the door on that part of the day. Let's start midday prayer. Here's a new part of the day. And then if that goes awful, then it's like, okay, well, here's evening prayer. Here's a new part of the day. It gives you four chances to reorient your day, which is pretty cool. Some church traditions have more. But anyways, for us, here. What does that look like for us, even prayer? What does all of this look like for us? Well, we talked a bit about learning. We talked about fellowshipping. Fellowshipping is mainly taking place in life-to-life -life relationships that we take uh, initiative of, but also it, that's what we're starting to try and cultivate in our groups throughout the week, on Wednesday nights, and in other areas um, throughout the week, if Wednesdays don't work for you. And then in feasting, we're, we're doing a lot of this, right? In a couple weeks, I, though, I think, though, with communion, we'll start trying to practice and add in communion as the welcoming of our after-church lunch, right? As this time of communing with one another, reorienting, reminding ourselves of the broken body of Jesus, the spilled blood of Jesus. But then a praying community. Not simply, I'll pray for you, brother, I'll pray for you, sister. But no, what would it look like for a people like us, throughout our places, as we scatter throughout the week, and we go be light, we go be salt in this community, that throughout the week, we're all, man, around lunchtime, we know, hey, there's like 50 of us praying right now for a minute, but it's just like supercharging us to keep going. What would that do? How would that reorient us? How would that help us better follow Jesus love others, serve others in our place of work, in our homes, in our community, wherever we're at in that day. So, one thing, one practical thing I've printed for us, if you'd like. So, out there, if you're signing up for groups, there's the Philippians books. Or if you're not able to sign up for groups, talk to me, and if you want to try and set up another option, we can definitely get you those books too. Uh, but I've printed out four little one-page prayers. There's a morning prayer, midday, evening, and nighttime prayer. It's from a place called the Transforming Center. Her name is Ruth Haley Barton. She's big spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation uh, guru in America. Uh, she is awesome, and her ministry is phenomenal. But they're just little couple, couple lines of prayers that you can uh, take, and you can put them in different places, and have available for you. So maybe the morning one, you have it on your nightstand. And when you wake up in the morning, you just read that prayer through. That's it. And there's, a, there's like a moment where I think there's like a bold line that says, time for silence. Just hear, ask God to speak to you. If there's anything he wants to speak. Great, just take in deep breaths as you're praying this through. As you see your chest filling up, as you see your body filling with the breath in your lungs, envision, man, God filling you with his life, his spirit filling you. But you can put these different pronouns in different parts throughout your day. Man, if you're always driving during lunch, put it in your glove box, something like that. If nighttime prayer, maybe put that on your nightstand as well. Your evening prayer by your cookbook. So right before dinner, you guys pray this prayer together. And if we 
These things, these practices, I think we fear and have feared, in particular the prayer component, but quite a few of these aspects that the early church integrated into their lives. We can be afraid of committing or trying to do these things because it seems as though we're trying to earn our way to Jesus. But no, see these as practices, as things that tools to help us. And man, maybe they won't work for you. That's where practice comes from, right? Every athlete or musician, they don't learn their trade, their sport, their musical uh, instrument in the same way. There's some techniques that help people learn differently and grow differently. So it is with spiritual practices, in particular things like prayer. But those resources are available for you there if you would like. It would be really cool, but I don't know how we could get to that. But sometimes I, I long for the, they do the morning prayer, they do the midday prayer, they do the, you know, I mean, Catholic churches even still do things like morning mass every day, some churches. It's kind of intense, but that's more akin to what these people did and what their way of life was. There's not a lot of space for that in our life, but still. So, my encouragement to us is to try to commit to devote yourself to at least one of these prayers, whether it be morning, midday, evening, or night. What that would do for us as a people as we shape our daily life in light of the way of Jesus. And in particular, it sets up for us next week. Because as we do this, as we live out Acts 2.42, what happens? Acts 2.47 happens. I'll close with this verse. Acts 2.47 happens. When they do this, day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. For some reason... Don't want to give away too much, but as they loved one another and lived life together, the world took notice. Their neighbors took notice. Their community took notice. And people joined them in the church. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.